Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. So we have a lot of hummingbirds around here in our Southern California desert neighborhood, and one of them got stuck and disoriented in our open garage the other day. Remember that, Lori? Yeah. So this uh, poor little guy just couldn't figure out that the opening straight ahead was where he should go. He kept on wanting to go up. And I did a little reading about hummingbirds and learned that that's their natural instinct. They're not used to being closed in. And when they need to escape, they they go up. And so it's a real treacherous situation for a hummingbird because they need to eat almost continuously. So you need to take an object like a broom or a rake. I saw a YouTube of that. And you just hold it underneath the hummingbird and allow the hummingbird to perch there and then gently just walk them outside so they can fly away. And eventually the hummingbird will get tired enough that he wants to take a little rest and will just perch right on this little object. So that's a good tip to help the hummingbird get out of your open garage. The other thing that I uh, recently learned is that if you've got a motorized garage door that's built anytime in the past few decades, chances are it has an emergency handle in case the power goes off and you need to get out. And this is a red color handle by law. And the hummingbirds are attracted to this. They they think it contains nectar. So you want to get rid of this red colored object either by painting it or wrapping it with electrical tape, black electrical tape, so it doesn't attract the hummingbird in the first place. So that was our recent little hummingbird experience, and it made us wonder what are some other things that you can do, like around the house, to help the wildlife that's sharing your neighborhood, right? Yeah. Well, one thing you can do is be sparing or even eliminate the use of pesticides and herbicides and other chemicals in your home and landscaping. Many chemicals used outdoors to kill certain insects also harm birds and insects that can be beneficial to us as well, like bees and butterflies. So I would say use as few chemicals in the outdoors as possible, right? You know, I've had some experience, you've smelled it with some of these products that are based on essential oil. They're very pungent. The insects don't like them at all, and they uh, are non-toxic. And never use rodenticides. Using poison bait to control rodents will always secondarily poison the raptors and other predators that eat the sick rodents. And there are many other humane alternatives to control rodents that are bothering you. Right. Another one, Peter, never feed wild mammals such as deer, raccoons, coyotes, obviously bears, right? Right. You know, where I used to live, I had a neighbor that would put cat food out for the raccoons. Well, raccoons can also attack and kill small dogs and cats. And they can carry rabies. So feeding these wild animals teaches them to be dependent on humans, and they end up losing their their, uh, fear of humans. They're more likely to come into conflict with people, and conflict with people almost always ends up being a bad situation for the animals. Right. On a similar note, put garbage and your litter in garbage cans. Food scraps by the side of the road can attract wildlife, which can then get hit by cars. And of course, if you are in bear country, you've got to abide by the local regulations about how to dispose of your trash when bears are around. They're very clever. Here's another one, Peter. Keep your dogs on leash when walking in open spaces or in areas where certain birds might be nesting. And in our area, a lot of which is designated bighorn sheep habitat, 
there are hiking trails and you're not supposed to bring your dogs because even if you don't see the sheep, they know the dogs are out there and it really messes up their mating rituals. So don't be a selfish dog guardian and just leave your dog at home if you're hiking near any of those trails. Good point. And finally, Peter, we've talked about this before. On When you're on vacation, be a smart souvenir shopper. Don't buy illegal or protected wildlife. Right, Lori, and you may run up against this in Southeast Asia where shells from uh, endangered tortoises may be uh, sold and other parts of animals that are just not legal to sell. So use caution. For more information on this, you can visit the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service travel and trade page or the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, CITES, CITES. for more information, right? Now, you said finally before, but I'm going to say more finally is the following bird follow-up point. Okay? Please do. So when we moved into the current house, there's a fair amount of glass around this house, and we kept on hearing this banging, and it was basically the birds flying right into the glass windows. Oh, I hate that. Very disturbing. And uh, you'd send me out, and I'd see a stunned bird right on the ground. And sometimes he or she would fly away, and other times it was just too much of an impact. So we went out and got these bird decals that were specially made, and uh, we bought a bunch of them, and they are supposed to have some optical property. Well, they were shaped like birds and flowers, but they were supposed to have some property that uh, encouraged the birds not to fly right into the window. It didn't work as well as it should, and it wasn't our final solution. And after about uh, three to five months, I would say, they started turning brown and ugly, and I had to scrape them off. Remember that? You didn't do the scraping. I was the scraper. And but so we replaced them. With- we replaced them. We had a better solution that I want to share. And that is the window film. These come in rolls or sheets, and they're very large, much larger, larger than the decals. And they are designed to put over a large part of a window to obscure it so people can't look in your house. They come in beautiful little patterns, many different kinds. And you get one of these for 20 bucks or something like that, a big roller sheet, and you just cut them up, and then you apply them wherever you need. Much better solution. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today. Check us out at animalstodayradio.com, where you can listen to any of our prior shows over the last seven and a half years. Check us out, animalstodayradio.com. I want to now welcome back to the show Darlene Kababel. She is the president of the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center. Welcome back to the show, Darlene. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Darlene, a few years ago, we interviewed a gentleman who rescued wolf-dog hybrids, and he was very strongly against that practice of breeding them or or creating them. How Mm -hmm. big a problem is wolf-dog hybrids these days, and does the center have a position on them? And, you know, to me, these individuals, irresponsible individuals, if you ask me, who want their dog to have a little wolf in them. It's really fraught with risks, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It can be, and that's that's a topic that is it can be very controversial in so many ways, and our stance pretty much is wolves should be wolves and dogs should be dogs. And the reason for that is because so many so many problems, a lot of people have uh, problems sometimes owning an, just a domestic dog, let alone owning one that may have some wolf in it, and then it starts to have some wolf behavior, and then it gets out of control, and then that you know that person or that family can't take care of 
that animal for whatever reason, and now they need to find a home for it. And the, the problem with finding a home for it is, um, first of all, if they do take it to any shelter, uh, and you open your mouth and say, I have a wolf, and you use that word wolf, wolf dog, wolf hybrid, um, within 24 to 48 hours, they, they usually will euthanize that animal because a lot of states, a lot of counties uh, are not allowed to adopt them out mm. for one reason or the other, depending on you know where you're at. And a lot of people call them wolf hybrids. That's actually an incorrect term. It's actually wolf dog because a hybrid wouldn't technically be able to reproduce. So the, the proper word is a wolf dog, uh, but a lot of people do call them wolf, uh, wolf hybrids. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to relate to them as a wolf dog. Um, and it is estimated at 250,000 that are born year, uh, every year. 80% won't even reach their third birthday. And there again, the reason for that, because uh, some people can't deal with them for one reason or another. And like I said earlier, they take them to a shelter or they try to find a sanctuary. The, the problem with sanctuaries is every single sanctuary in the United States is full beyond capacity. And, I mean, look at your dog rescues out there right. and, and, you know, your shelters and your humane societies and, and non-kill shelters or whatever. They're full because we have a lot of, unfortunately, irresponsible people in a disposable society to where they can't, you know, they don't, something happens in their life and, oh, just give it away or, or take it to, get rid of that problem and, and you know, life goes on. And uh, so many wonderful, wonderful animals that are euthanized every single year because somebody didn't take the responsibility uh, when adopting that animal, buying that animal, whatever. Um, so with the wolf dog, it is very popular because a lot of people like to own a piece of the wild. Or if you look at the wolf dogs or the wolves, they're beautiful, majestic animals. So sometimes people want to ha have that little bit of wild you know, next to them. You can buy these animals anywhere from a few hundred all the way to a few thousand, depending on who the breeder is and how much money they want to make out of it. And I've seen such exotic mixes that's like, oh my gosh, that animal's been extinct for, you know, <laughs> that buffalo for X amount of years or whatever, but the more exotic that they can put a title on it, the more money they can make out of these animals. The only true, true way to really find out if your, your wolf dog has wolf uh, traits is to do a DNA test. What happens is, say, if someone does get a true wolf dog, has a lot of wolf behavior to it, um, they oh, I'll raise it as a puppy, and it'll become a house dog. It's still a wild animal. That's the problem. Back, and then all of a sudden, now you've got this vicious animal, and then the wolf gets a bad name. Darlene, just like having an exotic animal as a pet, I feel it's unfair and almost inhumane to have a wolf dog hybrid as a pet. I mean, you just don't know how much internal confusion, if you will, these animals are experiencing. They have wild characteristics. They have domesticated characteristics. They must experience some level of confusion as to what they are and how they should behave. You know, you're so right on that. If it's still part wolf, truly part wolf, they need space. They need hiding places. They they have instincts that you're taking that away from them, right? And it's and it is that too. They can become neurotic. Uh, they can. You see them to where they do neurotic behaviors um, because they're stuck. They they have no natural, you know, mental stimulation. And and without that, it's that is, that is cruel. Yeah, it's bad enough that we have these breeders out there breeding purebred dogs and. Diseases. 
designer dogs at a time when our shelters are at maximum capacity and at a time when we're killing five to six million dogs and cats every year in our country's shelters. So now we have these same sort of selfish individuals breeding for profit, creating an animal whose genes are a mixture of wild and domesticated. And we're creating an animal that we're really not sure how content or happy their lives will be. And as you mentioned, many of which will end up being relinquished to a shelter where they will automatically be euthanized or they'll just be abandoned or dumped. Darlene Kavabo, president of Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. a really interesting story that brings us to the early days of the animal welfare movement in the United States, and it involves a determined Boston socialite, ladies' fashion, and birds. I want to welcome Kate Kelly, who is going to share this fascinating piece of American history with us. Kate is an author and historian, and her website is americacomesalive.com. Welcome back to the program, Kate. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. Kate, this is so fascinating for many reasons, but especially because it involves a woman in the 1800s and because it represents such a revolutionary idea, that being protecting animals. Kate, where does the story begin? Well, the story begins, in terms of the conservation part of the story, we, we pick up with Harriet Lawrence Hemingway. And she became active in about the 1890s because she became concerned about a fashion trend that had become popular in the 1870s. The fashion trend that bothered her was the fact that women had started wearing big brimmed hats with lots of decoration. The decorations were ribbons, they were feathers, they were all sorts of different things. And sometimes they were actually full bird bodies. Mm. Birds had been killed and stuffed and placed on the hat. Now, this trend seemed to be, it started in Europe and spread over to the United States. The bird killing in order to get these feathers was in Europe and then again gravitated over to the United States. And Certainly the Florida Everglades was an area that was heavily hit because they could get snowy egrets down in that area, flamingos, all sorts of birds. And, and the, the hunters were just going in and decimating the population. They didn't take a few birds. They would kill massive numbers of birds, including mothers sitting on eggs or mothers taking care of their young, and they would take out that parent, and there was nobody there to to care for the baby birds after that. So, that, of course, the birds didn't make it. So it was really growing to the point that there were fewer and fewer. I mean, the bird population was, was seriously and noticeably down. But when you look at the economy of the fad, you, you understand what was happening. In the late 1890s, the feathers were selling for $20 per ounce, and that's an ounce of feathers. That, that, that's quite a few flowers feathers because it, an ounce 
of feathers is a very light thing, but you figure $20 at that time would have been worth $510 in money today. So this kind of hunting was actually more profitable than going out and digging for gold. So, so it was certainly something that was, was very, very prominent and prevalent at the time. At that time, Kate, was there any similar interest in the welfare of any other animals? Not at that time, because think about the fact that in the 1870s, we had no motorized vehicles. People were still using um, horses and, and mules for pulling any sort of conveyance. So it was one of those things that animals were very much a part of people's worlds, but they weren't protected. You know, the cats were rodent catchers. The dogs might have been security dogs. I think people also did like having dogs around. Nobody really cared for them like pets in the way that we do today. So no one was watching out for animals at that time. So back to Hemingway. She was a real visionary, wasn't she? Yes, she was. And the thing that was so admirable about her was the part of the world that she attacked. You know, she was not going to be the woman to go down and halt the hunters, but what she could do was begin to change the fashion trend. So what she did was connected with one of her cousins in Boston, and the women started having teas. And at these teas, they would invite different groups of women, and they would present the case that by the women wearing these plumed hats, they were actually causing the destruction of vast numbers of birds in in various parts of the country. Now, some of the women were offended. They thought, this is not appropriate, and I'm going to wear what I'm going to wear, and they would walk out of the tea almost before they arrived. But other women stayed and listened, and eventually Hemingway was able to watch and see a change in the trend in this this type of fashion. And of course, once the trend becomes less popular, you see a, a drop in the market, which is what they needed to do in order to match what was going on in Florida, which was that there were environmentalists in the Everglades who were trying to put an end to this type of of hunting. But the problem was that if you stationed a warden in a particular area, the warden was also very likely to be killed because, again, the value of those birds and the feathers was just so great to the hunters. Wow. Was there any indication that she had a particular fondness for birds? Did she like birds? That's a really good question don't know why Hemingway particularly beamed in on the birds. She and her husband were both environmentally interested, and eventually she not only started the Massachusetts Audubon Society chapter, but she also stayed with the organization long enough to convince them that buying land to set aside as a preserve was an activity that was important for nonprofit organizations. So what was Hemingway able to do to take action and get a male-dominated society to care about this cause? You know, I think she just pushed for the cause. Now, I, I have written about another woman who basically did work through her husband to establish the legal work and to establish a board of directors. So women at that time did not have a lot of ability to to mastermind things. And so when she went after the theory that the Audubon Society should be purchasing land, she did work through her husband, who was an environmentalist. And I think, I, I don't think the women particularly fought that at the time, simply because that was just how they could get something done. And so they accepted what the terms were and worked through the men. And, and, I, and I would say that her husband was absolutely instrumental but she was 
telling him what she wanted him to do. So you mentioned Hemingway's work led to the establishment of the Massachusetts Audubon Society, which was the first one in the United States, right? It was the first chapter in the United States. George Bird, Bird Grinnell had established the national chapter about 10 years before she started the, uh, the, the national organization, before uh, Hemingway started the local chapter. So there was legislation this society was able to pass p- to protect birds. Yes, and we were very fortunate that Teddy Roosevelt was president at that time, because when he became aware of what was happening, he was very conservation-minded, although he was also a hunter, but he established in 1903 that there would be a land preserve down in the Everglades, and that's when Pelican Island was established. Now, it was originally established simply as a bird preserve, but then after that it became an animal refuge, and they do date that one to being the first property that was set aside by the federal government for first saving the birds, but then later saving the animals. So we're lucky that we had someone in in mind who was willing to follow that path that was going on, because the first legislation to protect birds was 1901. So, So he was pretty quickly following the lead that he was observing going on around him. Now, Hemingway did convince the Massachusetts Audubon Society to purchase land in Massachusetts to become a preserve, and this is in 1922. Why is that so important? Because she basically set a pattern that we still follow today. Yeah. It's often the nonprofit organization that goes out and acquires the land and then decides how it's going to be managed. Organizations will buy land for animal and, and bird preservation, and then they decide what parts are absolutely vital in order to save and manage for that conservation purpose. Kate Kelly, this was so interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you. Welcome back to the program. Hi, Peter. Hey, Laurie. So I have to tell my listeners this story. I went into our garage. I need to get something out of the garage. And I heard a little sound like a... <laughs> I <don't> like that sound. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what the heck is that? I was thinking, maybe it's like a lizard. Because we get lizards. We get lizards. Or it was a windy night. Maybe it was just the wind blowing something. Then I heard it again. You know, we also get these big moths. So when I've heard stuff like that, I go looking for moths. Right. So I I didn't think anything of it. And then it happened again. And I looked down and there's this huge scorpion. Where was I? Oh, you didn't hear my scream? Oh, that was that. (laughs) How big was it? Four or five inches? Four inches, I would say. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this was pretty big. I mean, I'm, I used to live in Tucson, Arizona. I, I remember seeing like little baby ones, like five centimeters. Yeah. But this was quite big. And he was wide. Wide and it's, meaty. And, and the and claws could just take out a toe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so uh, how, was it, how did I get involved in this one? Okay, well, you heard my scream. You said, what the heck's going on here? Yeah. And um, I, I put a, a little piece of cardboard around him just sort of to trap him within the wall and i was able to coax him 
onto my trusty lacrosse stick again. Oh, that's uh, your trusty lacrosse. It's worked for tarantulas. It's worked for snakes. Yeah. And uh, able humanely, to humanely, by the way, well, I didn't crush them or anything right? like that. Humanely I, mean, I don't, I don't, I don't I'm not warm and fuzzy about scorpions, but you know, but we love all animals and uh, got him in our little container and relocated him to my favorite neighbor. No, just joking <laughs> to a nice, nice rocky spot in the open desert. And I watched him. He was happy to get out of that styrofoam container. But even while he, I was moving him, I was afraid that he was going to do something impossible, you know, like eat through this big, thick container. I heard him with the sound, do the, do the sound again. I heard that. <laughs> and you're holding him and it's just like, okay, I don't like this so much. Well, you couldn't be that scared. You took the time to take a picture and post it on Facebook. Well, you okay. picture of me and the scorpion in the same frame, right? Well, well that's right. <laughs> a selfie. So we thought, yes, we need to learn more about scorpions and let's have an expert talk about scorpions. So now I want to welcome back to the show conservationist Matt Ellerbeck. Hi, Matt. Hi, how are you today? I'm great. Matt, what are scorpions? Are they insects? No, although a lot of people think they're insects because of their sort of general appearance and their size, they're actually arachnids. So they'd be more closely related to spiders and ticks than they would be to other insects. And a really easy way to sort of tell an arachnid apart from an insect. Our insects generally have um, a pair of antennas um, and they have three main body segments and six legs. Why arachnids have no antennas, they have eight legs and they have two main body segments. Mm. So although a lot of people would kind of just, you know, look at all of those animals as, as bugs, there actually are quite a few differences between arachnids and insects and scorpions are arachnids. Matt, where are scorpions found? So to most people, when they think of scorpions, they think that they live in the desert, and that is true. Um, there are a lot of scorpion species found in desert areas, both in the United States and in other countries around the world. But a lot of scorpions live in other areas as well, including tropical and temperate forests. And when you consider the number of scorpion species that are found worldwide, there's nearly 2,000, so that's a, a massive amount of different species. It really does make people think that, of course, they would live in many different types of habitats with that many different species. Now, scorpions are, of course, absent from the polar um, regions because they are ectothermic, which is essentially the proper term for cold-blooded, which just means their body temperature is generally the same as that as their surroundings. Mm -hmm. So they have to live in places that have a temperature that where they can maintain uh, normal body functions. Are scorpions poisonous or venomous? There is a difference between poisonous and venomous. A poison is a toxin that is ingested. Um, so if you bit a poisonous animal or you ate, you know, say, mushrooms in the forest, they could be poisoned. That's a toxin that's ingested. While venom is injected via a bite, say, so maybe like a rattlesnake or a sting, like a scorpion. So scorpions sting. Uh, they don't have fangs. They aren't able to bite or inject toxins into their prey, but at the end of their tails, they have a bulb-like um, apparatus with a stinger attached to it, which is very sharp, and it's almost like a needle. So it's, uh, it's hypodermic. So when it, it stabs into its prey, uh, the venom can flow through that apparatus. 
Now, with that being said, some scorpions have venom that is toxic enough to be of a threat to human beings. But with that said, they're quite shy animals. They spend a lot of their time hiding under rocks or debris. They usually come out at night. And certainly an animal as small as a scorpion is not going to intentionally look for people to sting or to attack. Most stings happen when people accidentally step on them, sometimes um, when they crawl into shoes or other clothing. So if you live in an area where you know there are scorpions, it's just important not to leave items of clothing like hats or shirts or, or shoes directly on the floor and then to shake things out before you put them on. It's just like, it's just using common sense of being around any animal. I mean, lots of forms of wildlife can potentially be dangerous, but they're not necessarily aggressive or, or looking for people to hurt. It's just a matter of really using common sense and, and respecting those animals. So what should I do if I get stung by a scorpion? First off, remain calm. And that's for any venomous animal because... If you get yourself panicked, your heart rate will increase, and then what you're going to do is you're actually going to start kind of pushing the venom, spreading the venom throughout your body via your upped heart rate. So it's really important to stay calm. Um, next thing to do is to seek medical attention. Um, a lot of scorpion stings do not require antivenom. Um, there is an antivenom developed called Anascorp, which is available in some places, but most Adults, generally healthy adults, a scorpion sting is not going to be life-threatening. It's, it can be very, very painful, and then and, and that can kind of, you know, stress the person out and, again, get them to panic. So it's important to reassure people that, you know, it's probably not life-threatening and seek medical attention. Now, the elderly, very young children or those with suppressed immune systems, it can be more serious for them. Um, so, again, it's important to keep them calm, get them to medical attention so they can be assessed there. One thing it's important to note is I mentioned earlier there's about 2,000 scorpion species around. Only about 25 of all of those species are equipped with a venom that's going to be strong enough um, to cause any serious harm to people. So the vast majority of scorpions, although their stings might be painful, like a bee sting, they're not going to be dangerous. Well, now I'm going to look in every single one of my shoes before I stick my foot in there and under my sheets before I go to bed at night. Thanks a lot, Matt. Matt, how about my cats or my dogs? Can the scorpion hurt or kill them? I have heard of dogs um, and, and pets being stung. And most people who have dogs and cats or other animals know their pet's body language very, very well. Um, so if you do see that something, they're behaving strangely, again, it's important to get them to a vet. To my knowledge, though, um, and I have never heard of a dog um, succumbing to a scorpion sting. I, I could be wrong, but I've never heard of that firsthand. So again, it's just important to be diligent and kind of follow the same rules that we'd apply to ourselves if we were stung to our, our, our pets as well. Matt, what roles do they play in the ecosystem? You, you always point out to us that every living creature has a role on this earth. What do scorpions do? Well, scorpions both act as both predators to smaller forms of invertebrates. So they eat a lot of other quote-unquote bugs. Um, so in that sense, they are 
sort of um, are natural bug catchers for the environment. Um, the other thing they do is they are prey items for larger animals such as birds and mammals. Um, some snakes will even eat scorpions um, and other reptiles and amphibians. So th- that's what a lot of people refer to as an equilibrium species where they are do prey on a number of different invertebrates and other arachnids and insects within their environment, but they're also prey items for other animals as well. Um, and scorpion venoms are being studied as, um, to help humans because venoms are designed as a way to quickly immobilize prey, and they have all these different um, enzymes and things within those venoms that work on different properties, and they're actually looking at some of those properties and, and trying to apply them uh, for research to help cure cancer and Parkinson's disease, blood clots. Um, so a lot of different serious health issues that affect people, we're starting to look at the way venoms work and get ideas on how to combat um, certain medical treatments. So. An animal, such as a scorpion, that a lot of people might say, oh, you know, they're, they're frightening, they're nightmarish, I don't like them. Um, because of scorpions, we might actually be able to treat really serious medical issues that one day could affect yourself or possibly someone you love. So it's really important to understand that, you know, all these animals play important roles in the natural world, and sometimes they give us ideas and, and ways to think about things that can benefit us as well. Interesting stuff. Matt Ellerbeck, thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website again is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. When educator turned hip-hop artist D1 finished paying back his student loans, he celebrated by writing the song Sally Mae Back. Now he's teaming up with Sally Mae to help students get on track to paying off their loans. I'm passionate about helping people learn about financial literacy. The reality is that students are hungry for information. They want to understand the facts about paying back their loans and the best way to do it. Sally Mae's Rick Castellano adds, We're thrilled to work with D1 to help students get into the rhythm of repayment. He lays out the process and steps that are both direct and doable, teaching the right moves for building credit and successfully paying back student loans. Now through January 11th, Sally Mae customers with eligible student loans have the chance to win up to $10,000 to pay down their loans. For D1's complete list of tips and to enter the Pays to Repay contest, visit SallyMay.com. That's SallyMay.com. I'm Bob Tebow for the Consumer Radio Network. It's 
So, Peter, a study was done by My Media Inc., which is a personal cloud for digital content, to answer the question, who loves their pets more, dog or cat owners? Yeah, okay. The study included a 1,000 participants. Peter, who do you think takes more pictures of their companion animals, dog owners or cat owners? Oh, that's easy. I'm going to go with cats. You are right. Cat owners take an average of four to five photos of their pet per day, which takes up 3.03 gigabytes per year. 7% of cat owners take more than two videos of their pet per week. The dog stats, dog owners take an average of two photos of their pet per day. Okay, so that's a lot less. That's a lot less, half as much, Okay, which is 1.21 gigabytes per year. Mm-hmm. 10% of dog owners take more than two videos of their pet per week. Just think about the like what this does to the GDP and how people should be working instead of taking all these pictures and storing them. I know, but listen to this. 40% of both cat and dog owners have run out of storage on smartphones. Oh, wow. <laughs> also, who runs out of storage on your phone? I guess cat and dog people do. They do. Also, a pet video a day eats the storage away. Two pet videos per week at 11 seconds each equates to 1.14 gigabytes per year. And then finally, 42% of all dog and cat videos and pictures that are taken are shared. 70% of pet photos are shared via text message. Okay, so the next generation of cell phones has even more storage. You would think so. Major support for Animals Today Radio comes from International Society for Animal Rights. For decades, ISAR has been a world leader in the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and its moral, social, and economic costs. Please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. March 31st is Cesar Chavez Day, a national commemorative holiday which celebrates the birth and legacy of Chavez. Chavez was born in 1927 and died in 1993, and his impact as a civil rights leader and labor movement activist was immense. He co-founded the National Farm Workers Union, which later became the United Farm Workers, and succeeded in gaining improvements in working conditions for farm laborers. President Obama urged Americans to, quote, observe this day with appropriate service, community, and educational programs to honor Cesar Chavez's enduring legacy. Now, you might ask, what does Chavez have to do with animals? Well, it turns out that Chavez also believed in the rights of non-human animals, even at the point of being vegan. In 1993, Dr. Elliot Katz, founder of Defense of Animals, presented Chavez with IDA's Lifetime Achievement Award. Our friend Eric Mills knows a thing or two about Chavez and his views and practices concerning animals. Eric is founder of Action for Animals. Welcome to the program, Eric. Thanks, Laurie. Appreciate you having me on. Eric, what did Chavez believe about animals and their place in society? Oh, boy. Cesar Chavez is a national treasure. And one of my most treasured possessions is a letter that the great man wrote to me back in 1990. I'd written to him about my work on rodeos and chariotas, the Mexican rodeo issues, and asking him for a support letter. And he wrote me back a short letter, but it contains this wonderful paragraph. I'd like to read, if I might. 
uh, excerpted, kindness and compassion towards all living things is a mark of a civilized society. Conversely, cruelty, whether directed against human beings or against animals, is not the exclusive province of any one culture or community of people. Racism, economic deprival, dogfighting, cockfighting, bullfighting, and rodeos are cut from the same fabric, violence. Only when we've become nonviolent towards all life will we've learned to live well ourselves. That's pretty extraordinary, I think. Sure is. I don't know if most folks know, but Mr. Chavez was a, a disciple of Gandhi and his uh, philosophy of nonviolence, and it carried over into society at large. I had the great good pleasure of meeting Mr. Chavez a couple times, marched with him in San Francisco once, and he told me at the time, this was probably the late 80s, that he himself was a vegetarian, had been so for a long time, and not for health reasons, but for ethical reasons, as was, he said, his, I think, 87-year-old mother at the time. Nobody knows this, and I think his followers need to know to be aware of that and put it into practice. I was in the state capitol again yesterday. Every year I circulate this letter throughout the capitol. There's a lot of lip service paid to Mr. Chavez on his birthday, March 31st, as well there should be. But and most of the legislators will bend over backwards saying nice things about Chavez, but they don't put anything into action that he preached. I met with the Latino caucus again this year, 25, 26 members, begging them to do a bill to ban steer tailing at the Mexican rodeo. It's a standard event. I got photos and video footage of tails being ripped off and horses getting their legs broken when the steers run the wrong way. And I think it's really important that we have a Latino author to carry the legislation so that it won't be seen as a racist attack upon Mexican culture and tradition, yeah. which, of course, it would be probably either way. None of the Latino legislators will touch it. They're all very sympathetic, but they say they can't do it because it's only Mexican-Americans who do this. I said, look, with all due respect, you're playing the race card in reverse. Right. If Cesar Chavez can speak out about this, then for heaven's sake, why can't you? Probably eight to 10,000 steers will be affected by such a law, and nobody will go there. And then I talked to the gringo legislators, and they won't carry it either because they say they would be penalized by the Latino caucus with their other legislation. Hmm. So both sides are playing the race card. You know, I'm from the South, and I'm gay. I know what racism and bigotry is all about. This is not it. It's simple animal abuse going under the guise of tradition and culture. Not acceptable, and it has to stop. I wish Cesar were with us today. He'd be leading the fight, I think. Eric, how do you recognize Cesar Chavez Day? Well, as I say, every year I circulate this letter throughout the Capitol, begging the legislators to do, to put into practice what Mr. Chavez preached. I write letters to the editor, uh, which is always good. Uh, I'm sure there are going to be celebrations and marches, and I've set up booths in the past about this, just getting the word out there. We tend to forget sometimes, too, that animals are members of the society as, as well as people, and we all deserve respect and concern and consideration and laws to protect us. As you know, the Pope recently ordained Junipero Serra as a new saint. I think it should have been Cesar Chavez, quite frankly, because he, he did, he's done more, I think, for people and animals in this country than most anybody else I can think of. But Cesar was a man of peace. He fasted for it. He really lived the life that he talked about, and very few of us do that. So he's certainly one of my heroes. Eric Mills, thank you very much. Thank you. I want to read to you a great quote by Chavez. 
We need, in a special way, to work twice as hard to make all people understand that animals are fellow creatures, that we must protect them and love them as we love ourselves. And that's the basis for peace. The basis for peace is respecting all creatures. We cannot hope to have peace until we respect everyone, respect ourselves and respect animals and all living things. We know we cannot defend and be kind to animals until we stop exploiting them, exploiting them in the name of science, exploiting animals in the name of sport, exploiting animals in the name of fashion, and yes, exploiting animals in the name of food. March 31st, Cesar Chavez Day a national commemorative holiday which celebrates the birth and legacy of Cesar Chavez. Thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.